Hi, friends. Before we start today's episode, I want to take a second to thank you. Your support over the past few weeks has been amazing. Seeing you post your stories on Instagram, reading your comments, reading your reviews. This has meant so much to me. It's honestly so easy to feel like I'm kind of just talking to the void in podcasting. I mean, I literally am talking in my closet right now, but you all really make me feel like I'm talking straight to you. So I want to, I really want to keep hanging out. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you can find us by searching at Truer Crime Pod on any of those websites and we should pop up. Before we begin today's story, please be aware that this episode contains references to sexual assault, incarceration, and very briefly, suicidal ideation. As I dove into this week's story, my mind kept drifting to this one particular viral graphic. It was created in 2017 by the anti-sexual assault nonprofit, Rain, And I remembered it because it went viral on my social networks, not once, but multiple times. And on each of these occasions, its headline seemed just as stark as the first time I'd seen it. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. Below the title are these rows and rows of grayed-out human silhouettes, each icon supposed to represent 10 perpetrators of sexual violence. Then came the broken-down statistics. Out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, 230 are reported to police. 46 reports will lead to arrest. Nine cases get referred to prosecutors. Five cases will lead to a felony conviction. 4.6 rapists will be incarcerated. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. So what about the five who won't? The five cases that end in felony conviction. The 4.6 who end up incarcerated. If the system that's quite literally designed to punish cases like this just doesn't, more than 99% of the time, well then what's happening in those other cases? It's a question with so many answers. And today, I'll tell you about one, because this is the story of Josiah Sutton. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. In order to tell Josiah's story, we have to go back to the 90s, October 25th of 1998 to be precise, because it's on this day in Houston, Texas, that a 41-year-old woman was in the parking lot of her apartment complex when she was suddenly approached by two men with a gun. According to a summary of trial records I read written by criminologist William Thompson, the men abducted the woman at gunpoint using her own car, a Ford Expedition. Her kidnappers alternated driving around the Houston area as they took turns sexually assaulting her in the middle backseat of the SUV. I won't go into the specific details of the attack, and to protect her privacy, I won't share her name. But as I'm sure you can imagine, this whole experience was absolutely terrifying for the victim survivor. I kept thinking of how she must have felt so at ease before being approached by the men. She had been so close to home. Eventually, her attackers decided to abandon the woman in the outskirts of Houston at Fort Bend County Field. Finally free, she went immediately to police. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 230 are reported to police. 
the officers took a full report and a rape kit was completed. Marianne Fergus, writing for the Houston Chronicle, would explain that even though the woman didn't get to clearly see her attacker's faces, she was able to provide a number of other descriptors. Both were young and black, and both were on the shorter side, at around 5'7". She herself was 5'10". She described them as lean, guessing them to be about 120 and 135 pounds apiece. The most distinctive features she noted about them, though, were their hats. One of the men wore a skull cap, and the other a sideways baseball cap. According to criminologist William Thompson's trial summary, the attack left the woman with significant trauma that, understandably, made going back to her old life really, really difficult. It took a long time before she'd feel ready to return to her apartment to stay, but five days after her assault, she decided to head back just briefly to grab a few of her things. So she got in her car and headed off towards her apartment, and then all of a sudden she sees three young men walking, two of whom stick out to her in particular. The way one of the men walked, it it just seemed so familiar to her. But ultimately, she was less interested in what they were doing and more interested in what they were wearing. One wore a sideways baseball cap, and the other wore a skull cap. She knew immediately then, these were her attackers. She quickly alerted police who wasted no time apprehending both young men. They were placed in the back of the patrol car and driven to a nearby police substation, where they waited in the parking lot as the woman, who sat in her own car 10 feet away, was asked by officers to confirm that these were the men who had attacked her. She looked through her window to take another peek at the two of them in the patrol car. Turning back to police, she felt absolutely sure. These were the two men who had kidnapped and assaulted her five days earlier. The two young men in the patrol car turned out to be 19-year-old Gregory Adams, also known as Dontrell Adams, and 16-year-old Josiah Sutton. And here's the thing. As someone writing about the experiences of other people, I know that my research, as thorough as it may be, will never be a replacement for the experiences of the folks who actually went through these events in real time. And this is what I was thinking about the day I hopped on social media and typed in the name of Josiah Sutton's mom, Carol Beatty. Remarkably, she was quite easy to find. I wanted to hear from her directly to know what she remembered about the day Josiah was picked up by the police. So I typed out a message and waited. And I didn't hear back. I figured my message had gotten swallowed up in the black hole that is the message request folder, and I kept working on the story. Two months passed. And then, one evening, my phone pinged. Carol had just seen my message. She would love to chat. She hoped she wasn't too late. Graciously, she agreed to do a video call with me. And when we spoke... She shared what she remembered about the day Josiah was brought in by police. By the time I got the call that the neighbors had told my other kids that Josiah had been arrested and he was at the police station and I immediately left work. And I went to the police station because we live like diagonal a few blocks from the police station. So I went there and when I got there, it was like there was a, a, a woman police officer. I'll never forget the scene because... She was laughing, Josiah. He always had a very strong sense of humor and he made her laugh and she was smiling and laughing. He was telling jokes and he had no idea what he was there for. None of them, they they said an assault, but they were thinking a fight because Josiah had previously had a fight in our complex from a bully that was picking on him. So he was thinking that was the reason that he was there. But come to find out when I got there, you know, I walked and I paced and I talked. And the police officer, she said, girl, don't worry about him. He's such a sweet kid. He's going to be okay. If he didn't do nothing, he's okay. And I was like, okay, so what did, you know, what is the details of this? 
And the next thing I know, I was outside the police station and they were taking him and Duntrell and putting them in the police car, taking them to juvenile. Josiah and Gregory were arrested, placed in a patrol car, and sent off to be held at a juvenile correctional facility. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 46 reports will lead to arrest. According to Marianne Fergus of the Houston Chronicle, Josiah wouldn't actually discover what he was being charged with until the next morning. Because it was then, after a night in jail, that he would have his first hearing in juvenile court. Once Josiah and Gregory were informed of what they were being charged with, they both immediately denied involvement. They were absolutely insistent. We didn't do this. You have the wrong people. But investigators were confident. Because this case, it wasn't short on physical evidence. The police had DNA, and they had a lot of it. They had collected semen from the seats where the assault occurred. And they also had the rape kit, which contained DNA mixtures made up of the DNA from the victim and both her attackers. The police, eager to solidify their case, asked Josiah and Gregory to provide DNA samples of their own for comparison. They both agreed, and their samples were set off to the HPD crime lab for testing. But DNA analysis is no quick process, and working your way through a crime lab's queue can take months or even years. And for Josiah and Gregory, that would mean waiting in jail, as they had already been charged based on the victim's identification. Given the nature of the crime committed, The prosecutor hoped to try Josiah, who, remember, was only 16, in adult court. He was certified during his certification hearing. The judge, Pat Sheldon, at the time, he was asleep during his entire certification hearing. And before I know it, they certified him as an adult and transferred him to the county, which was a county uh, facility that houses all sorts of inmates, anything from rapists to murderers to any type of crime that you can imagine. He was transferred there and he was 16 years old. It was now December of 1998. And in the eyes of the law, Josiah Sutton was an adult. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, nine cases get referred to prosecutors. And then finally, three months later, came the day everyone had been waiting for. The DNA results were back. And they confirmed that the young men had told the truth. Or rather, it confirmed that one of them had told the truth. Gregory Adams, the one who had been wearing a skull cap the day he was identified, did not commit this crime. The forensic evidence proved it. His DNA was not a match. But for Josiah Sutton, newly 17, the results were not nearly so positive. Because according to prosecutors, his DNA was a match. And in the eyes of the state, these results, they were pretty condemning. For Josiah's family, the results meant pretty much nothing. Josiah insisted he was innocent, so they believed him. Maybe no one more than Josiah's mom, Carol, who, according to reporting from journalist Marianne Fergus, would organize barbecue dinners and garage sales to raise money for her son's defense. As I imagine so many families would feel, they desperately wanted Josiah home. At barely 17, Josiah's entire life stretched mostly ahead of him. According to reporter Roma Khanna, Josiah, the oldest of his siblings, played his role as the doting big brother so well, he even earned himself a nickname, Papa. And Carol Beatty, just 15 when she had Josiah, had a deeply close relationship with her firstborn son. That's my mother and my father, Josiah would say about his mom in an interview with journalist Marianne Fergus. And like any family, things weren't always easy. According to the Houston Chronicle, Josiah's dad left the state when he was only six. And Johnny, Josiah's youngest brother, was born with a heart condition that required many surgeries. 
But Carol Beatty worked extremely hard, even holding multiple $8-an-hour jobs to make sure ends met. Eventually, at 14, Josiah taught himself to cut hair. And picking up work? Well, for Josiah, it meant giving back to the family who deeply loved him. I was a single mom, so he would kind of be the head of house while I was away at work and things that I did. And I remember the time that he was going to school for the summer. And during that time, the city of Houston was paying students to go to summer school. So it was like a work study program for the city of Houston. And he was in that program. He was getting paid for going to school. And then plus he was working in the barber shop. So that particular day I needed to go to Walmart and, you know, needed household items. And he was the one to say, mom, I'm going to take you and I'm going to pay for everything. And I was like, really? So he had the money and we went to Walmart and I think my bill was like 200 plus dollars and he did not hesitate to go in his pocket to pay for everything and make sure that the money was there. But despite this, Josiah was still a kid. And that meant balancing life and work alongside school. And the truth was, when it came to school, Josiah had a lot going on. He was a smart kid, naturally a quick thinker. But as a teenager, he was starting to struggle a bit academically. And like many kids, Josiah was dealing with bullies. At one point, according to the Houston Chronicle, Josiah would bring his mom's boyfriend's gun to school in the hopes of intimidating said bullies. It was a move that would land him probation, a penalty the courts deemed fair for a first-time offender. But let's be honest. Josiah was a kid, and kids don't always come up with the best solutions to problems. And overall, Josiah was the kind of friendly person that adults love. In the fall of 1998, he restarted ninth grade somewhere new. A fresh start. And while things didn't necessarily get easier— he ended up suspending for fighting towards the start of the year. Josiah never believed any of this would last forever. He was a naturally gifted football player, the kind of kid that might actually have a shot at making it. He'd tell Marianne Fergus that he and his friends spent a lot of time just, you know, talking the way teenagers do, daydreaming of a not-so-distant future where they'd be rich and successful. For Josiah, the way he'd get there was pretty clear. Football. And what he'd spend those riches on? Even clearer, a house for his mom, of course. Carol Beatty would tell me that when Josiah's lawyer, Joel Salazar, explained the state's offer, 50 years in exchange for a guilty plea, she fired him and hired Gregory Adams's lawyer, Charles Herbert, in his place. Carol Beatty wasn't willing to let go of her son or his dreams without a fight. And if clearing Josiah's name meant going to trial, then they would. I remember the first time that I saw him in in jail behind the glass. And I said, baby, don't you ever admit to anything that they tried to convince you to. He said, oh no, mama, my mind is made up. I didn't do it. I know I didn't do it. And I'm not. So he didn't. All there was left to do was wait. And when the trial finally came, it was July. The prosecutor was Joseph Ombi. And according to Marianne Fergus, Ombi had a reputation for being tough. The prosecution's case was straightforward and made up of just two arguments, though admittedly, both were very compelling. An ID from the victim herself and a DNA match that linked Josiah directly to the attack. The victim survivor in this case was willing to testify at trial, and it's worth noting that this was no small feat. Participation in the criminal legal process can be extremely distressing for crime victims, and according to researchers Jim Parsons and Tiffany Burgeon, recounting experiences in court is often especially traumatic. 
Nevertheless, the prosecutor walked the victim survivor through the events of October 30, 1998, the day she identified Josiah and Gregory on the drive to her apartment. She explained that while she had never had the opportunity to clearly see Josiah's face during the attack, she was able to recognize him that day based off his hat, that sideways baseball cap. When asked on the stand to confirm that this was the man who had attacked her, she pointed directly to Josiah. She was still sure. It was him. And Prosecutor Ombi, well, he was just getting started. According to reporting from the Houston Chronicle, he rarely held back. He'd even tell the jury that Josiah was, quote, evil and dangerous. Carol Beatty would tell me that watching people talk about her son in this way was extremely hard. They painted the picture they wanted to paint, she'd say. It's their job. But for all they'd say about Josiah's character, it was the DNA evidence that would be the state's real smoking gun. And for this, they put HPD crime lab analyst Christy Kim on the stand to testify to her findings. In her testimony, Kim explained the significance of DNA, saying, if it came from one person, it should have the same exact DNA pattern. No other two persons will have the same DNA except in the case of identical twins. Reading the trial transcripts, this all pretty much matched up with my, admittedly very limited, understanding of DNA. And it's what made the evidence against Josiah so damning. But according to the Houston Chronicle, despite the mounting case against him, Josiah felt fairly calm. Though it is worth noting that we're talking about someone who was just 17, someone who hadn't even finished his second year of high school yet. Josiah would later admit to Marianne Fergus that he had a pretty difficult time following the proceedings. The court jargon on its own was hard to keep up with, but the science talk used to explain the DNA evidence was nearly impossible to understand. And honestly, this makes a lot of sense. I read the entirety of Christy Kim's testimony, and as an adult who's taken a few college science classes, I also found my eyes glazing over as they discussed primers, enzymes, and DNA replication on page after page. We're talking nearly 80 pages worth of scientific testimony and cross-examination. Yet, despite this, as I read more and more about the importance and uniqueness of DNA and DNA matching, I just couldn't see how the defense could possibly explain this away. And then finally, I got a peek at the defense's strategy when the prosecutor asked him whether she was able to pull identifiable DNA strands from the evidence collected from the car and rape kit. Because before she can answer, Josiah's defense speaks up. And here, I'll read directly from the transcript. Objection, judge. Overruled, came the reply from the bench. The defense, undeterred, spoke up again. I have an objection. It hasn't been established that this witness is capable of testifying to the results of this test. The judge asked the defense attorney to approach the bench. The judge speaks now. Are you saying she's not an expert? You feel she hasn't been proven to us as an expert? Is that all you're objecting to? Yes. The judge's decision? Overruled. The defense asked for a clarification. So I understand. Is she testifying as an expert at this point? The judge is firm. Yes, your objection is overruled. I don't know for sure, but maybe to the jury, this objection seemed a little odd. The prosecutor had clarified Christy Kim's credentials at the start of her testimony. She worked at the HPD crime lab where she had been employed for 17 years. She had a biology degree and DNA-specific training. She regularly attended seminars on the newest developments in forensic and DNA science. But, like I said, the avenues for the defense seemed limited. Maybe it was time to go for broke. 
Regardless, the prosecutor continued his questioning, asking Kim again whether she was able to identify DNA patterns from the evidence submitted. And this time, we get her reply. Yes. Christy Kim went on to explain the conclusions of her analysis. And for this, I was actually able to get a hold of the original report she took. And these seemed pretty alarming. According to Kim's report, Josiah Sutton's DNA pattern was found in everything she had tested. The semen on the Ford Expedition seats, the vaginal swab and the pubic comb debris, both from the rape kit, even on a cutting from the victim's jeans. And while Kim wouldn't note it during her testimony, her report even solidified the unlikelihood that the DNA evidence could possibly match to anyone else, saying, quote, The DNA type of Jay Sutton can be expected to occur in one out of every 694,000 people among the Black population. The state's case seemed airtight. So for Josiah and his lawyer, the strategy was all about reasonable doubt. In the cross-examination of Christy Kim, the defense pushed forward with a line of argumentation foreshadowed during those earlier objections. Hoping to place doubt in the jury's mind about the DNA, the defense pointed out that the HPD crime lab wasn't accredited and that contamination could potentially lead to errors in DNA analysis, though they never really provided any solid evidence that contamination actually occurred. The defense didn't even provide their own independent DNA testing to counter the prosecutions. More on that later. But they did choose to have Josiah himself testify. And on the stand, he continued to proclaim what he always had, his innocence. The ID couldn't be correct, his team argued. He had an alibi. Josiah had been at his cousin's house, watching Titanic. Earlier in the evening, he had been with a friend, playing video games. But according to the Houston Chronicle, his attorney didn't exactly paint him in the best light. He'd asked him questions on the stand that honestly made him look like a kid on the wrong path. Within three days, the trial was over. It would take the jury less than two hours to return their verdict, finding 17-year-old Josiah Sutton guilty of aggravated sexual assault. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, five cases will lead to a felony conviction. When his sentence was announced, Josiah remained quiet as his family screamed and wailed in grief. Taken immediately back to his holding cell, Josiah wouldn't be there to witness his 13-year-old brother, James, who'd run back into the courtroom, saying he wanted to commit a crime so that he could stay with his big brother. For Josiah's family, the verdict and sentence were devastating. Carol Beatty would remember that in the midst of their grief, security was called on them. Their anguish had been coded as threatening. They called the people on my family. like It was like all kinds of guys in uniforms with guns coming. But when we got on the elevator, they laughed at us. The police officers? They did. They laughed at us. And then when we got downstairs, my family was very emotional. And we heard a couple of the deputies saying, oh, another one bites the dust. And they laughed. But despite their family's pain, for the prosecutor, this resolution was a victory. Now only July of 1999, the case had worked its way through the system in under nine months an extremely speedy timetable to the state. And for Josiah, well, he would say to Houston Chronicle, going to prison for me was like seeing my death before it happens. It's like everything that you lived for, stood for, everything is gone. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 4.6 rapists will be incarcerated. Josiah Sutton had been sentenced to 25 years. Behind bars, life for the incarcerated continues. And the same is true for Josiah, 
who began serving his time at the Clemens Unit Prison in Brazoria County, Texas. Despite his conviction, he continued to maintain his innocence, telling just about anyone and everyone that he had been wrongfully convicted, that he was sure that one day he would be exonerated. According to Marianne Fergus, Josiah was confident, even telling folks he'd be out by his 21st birthday. I'd wonder whether he really believed that, or if maybe he was just hoping to will it into his reality. But as long as he proclaimed his innocence, so too would his family. His grandmother was sure that God was at work, that Josiah would be freed, and that his case would one day become famous. His family came to the prison to see him each week, but their visits were painful, a reminder of everything they had lost. For them, the injustice was impossible to swallow. So many people get walked on and say, hey, this is this and this is, I'm going to accept it. But I didn't accept it. I felt like, if I recall, I go back into the slavery times when the kids were sold into slavery. That's how I felt. I felt like my son was being a victim of slavery and and I wasn't going to stand for it, especially when I rode the miles to see him every weekend in prison and I could see cotton fields and pig slaughters and cow where they actually, Texas is ran by free labor, leather goods, cotton, all kinds of stuff. And it just made me even fight harder. You know, I would go to the prisons and the way they treated them, I would write letters to different people. I just didn't stand around and be quiet about it. But despite the family's will to fight, despite their deep faith that Josiah would eventually be freed, at present, he was still a person in prison. A person who would come of age not on the football field or alongside friends, not at home with family, but instead amongst a lot of violence and pain. I asked Carol Beatty what that was like for her and the rest of the family, for life to continue without Josiah there with them. In some way, me and my family was in prison. We didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't celebrate holidays. You know, I always had this thing to take family portraits with my kids. We didn't do that because it was always a missing piece. Reporters Roma Khanna and Marianne Fergus would write that in prison, Josiah would see many things he wouldn't ever be able to unsee. Men who committed suicide, men who were raped, men who were murdered. Horrendous things for anyone to witness at any age. And I can't help but be reminded of just how unlikely reform is in such a highly traumatic environment. How can we expect healing in a place that's so intent to inflict pain and violence, a major root cause of crime itself? According to the Houston Chronicle, Josiah sent a letter to his grandma. Perhaps it would be better if I didn't go on, he'd written. But he did. And to cope, he turned to his Christian faith. Eventually, he discovered the Quran and developed a deep interest that led him to convert to Islam. His spiritual commitments would act as a guiding force, helping him to face the difficulty of his new day-to-day reality. Josiah would earn his GED, and folks incarcerated alongside him even gave him a nickname, Big Third, a credit to his hometown Houston ward and his large football player stature. Even though prison was never where Josiah pictured himself, he kept busy, focused on his faith and overturning his conviction. At home, Carol Beatty would do the same praying for her son each night. And I'm a very spiritual person and I believe that the spirit of God dwells within me. And one day I sat on the side of my bed 
And I said, God, I'm just this 1%. And he said, DNA, maybe 99.9, but I'm 100% just hanging there. And I did. Carol Beatty would do everything she possibly could. But the roadblocks, well, they never really seemed to let up. You know, it's like a conspiracy theory. That's what they call it when it's really the truth. You know, and I felt like I was trying to convince someone of this conspiracy theory as they say it, and no one would listen to me. I went to attorneys and no one would listen. I went to Black activists. I went to, I wrote the governor at that time, was our president, George Bush. I went to the NAACP, the Black United Front. And because the world was was saying DNA was 99.9% accurate, no one would hear me. According to the Houston Chronicle, Josiah would write to the Texas Innocent Network and Carol to the New York Innocence Project, asking for their support. They were turned down by both. Policies prevented each from taking on cases where DNA evidence was used to convict. In 1999, Josiah filed an appeal for a new trial citing ineffective assistance of counsel. While he'd offer several arguments to support his appeal, the most significant was a claim that his attorney had failed to follow through on getting independent DNA testing completed. While his original attorney, Charles Herbert, admitted to the court that he had suggested independent DNA testing, he'd also explained that Josiah and his family were informed that independent testing of this nature would cost $1,200 to $1,500. Josiah's family, he'd say, only provided him a little over $600, half of what was needed. Herbert would tell the court that he didn't follow through with the testing because he was under the impression that there weren't any more evidence samples available to test. And this, it piqued my interest straight away. No more samples available for testing? What did that even mean? An internet deep dive gave me my answer. DNA evidence isn't just something you can test over and over again. It's a lot more limited than that. An individual DNA sample can typically be tested once. That means that once your samples are gone, they're gone. No more independent testing for anyone. And the truth was, as wild and unfortunate as that situation may be for a defendant, it didn't always apply. And as it turned out, it wouldn't apply in this case because there was additional DNA left to test. And contrary to Herbert's claim about cost, two of Josiah's family members would testify that Herbert never informed them that they had to pay anything additional to have the testing completed something they likely would have been more than willing to figure out if only they had ever known. That said, the standards to win an appeal are high. And a lot of benefit of the doubt is given to the trial lawyer in cases where clients claim their attorney was ineffective. According to Court Justice Don Wittig, who oversaw Josiah's appeal, the court must look at the quality of the defense from the perspective of the defense attorney, rather than looking in hindsight at isolated actions the attorney took. Reading this, I was pretty shook. Doesn't hindsight matter so much more than whatever the attorney's particular logic happened to be at the time? Impact over intent, right? We hear it all the time. Who cares what the attorney intended? A felony conviction? That's not a light thing. It's life-altering. If the defense lawyer's actions even might have led to the unfair conviction of the defendant, shouldn't that take precedence? No. The answer was no, because on January 18, 2001, just one day shy of Josiah's 20th birthday, the 14th District State Court denied his appeal. I couldn't help but think of Josiah's continued declarations that he'd be freed by his 21st birthday. With only a year to go, 
It seemed his words were more pipe dream than prediction. Nonetheless, as he always did, Josiah kept it pushing. He spent his days in the law library learning everything he could, sure he'd eventually find the answer he was looking for. Outside prison walls, Carol Beatty, too, continued her search for answers, but it was hard. She'd tell reporter Roma Khanna that the pain was daily. Every time she'd see something that reminded her of Josiah, it all came flooding back. It was a trauma that would follow her, shifting the way she'd see the world forever. I dealt with two more sons at home, two more young Black men that I was afraid if they went to the store, if they went, you know, that was a a fear that I had to overcome. Even now, you know, I still kind of deal with that, you know, even with the things that are going on in the communities with the Black men getting killed, you know, it's like it's it's something that still sits in the back of your head. You know, you can try to forget, but those type of traumatic experiences are something that, you know, I think about the mothers of the victims of the the minority men that are murdered and killed by police, you know, and then it's just brushed under the rug, you know, and it, it makes you not trust the system in itself. It's not it's not trustworthy. And then in November of 2002, Carol Beatty was watching the news when she saw something that she hoped would change their lives for the better. The news segment, which aired on Coup 11, Houston's CBS affiliate, was an investigative report on the Houston Police Department's crime lab. According to journalist Matthew Shear, writing for The Atlantic, an anonymous source had contacted Coup 11 and alerted them to look into the lab. Deciding to act on the tip, two of the station's reporters, David Razik and Anna Warner, obtained a number of DNA samples that had been tested by the HPD lab and had them independently analyzed. The findings were shocking. Journalist Matthew Shear would write for The Atlantic that, and I just have to quote this, it appeared that the Houston police technicians were routinely misinterpreting even the most basic samples. Carol Beatty was shocked. But she felt so strongly that this information, it would help free her son. I jumped from the seat and I was praising God and thanking God. And I said, this is it. This is it. I knew I've never been so excited about it you know, something in my life. Carol was elated, but she also knew she couldn't celebrate for too long. It was time to take action. Immediately, she emailed Ku 11 about Josiah's case and arranged to have his record sent over. The reporter's interests were piqued. They decided to send Josiah's records to criminologist William Thompson for an independent review. Thompson, who held both a PhD and law degree, worked as a professor at UC Irvine in their Department of Criminology, Law, and Society. A DNA expert, if there ever was one, Thompson had been studying and writing about DNA evidence since the mid-1980s, according to The Atlantic. When Thompson's review was complete, Ku 11 filmed and aired another segment, this time interviewing Thompson to discuss his findings. And his report, which I read in full, was pretty, to say the least, horrifying. Out the gate... Thompson straight up calls the notes Christy Kim took for her DNA analysis sketchy, saying she didn't at all adequately document the work she'd done. But as it turned out, a lack of documentation wasn't the only problem. (laughs) Not by a long shot. And okay, I'm no forensic expert, but I do want to make sure we're all on the same page. So I'm going to try to break down the science that's most pertinent, as simply and as clearly as I can. Though you can read the entirety of Thompson's report on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. So, when a crime like this occurs, especially one where there's DNA evidence, 
it's so important for analysts to get a DNA sample from the victim so that when they're looking at the evidence, they know which DNA belongs to them and not, say, the perpetrator or someone else even. And if you've ever done a DNA test with a company like Ancestry or 23andMe, you probably know that a DNA sample is relatively easy to provide. It's usually like a spit or small blood sample and you send it in. And once scientists get your sample and analyze it, they're able to determine your unique DNA pattern. And that process of taking the sample and pulling an individual DNA pattern, it's called typing. And here's where it gets interesting. Because in Thompson's review, he noted that the DNA samples provided by the victim were typed by Christy Kim three separate times. And each time, Kim came up with a different DNA pattern for the victim. And I want to slow down here because this is very, very important. That's not a small error. In fact, it's indicative of a major problem with Kim's testing methods because an individual person can only have one DNA pattern. If you remember from earlier, Kim herself testified as much at trial. And this was wild to me because the uniqueness of each person's DNA, the fact that no one except identical twins has the same pattern, it's what makes DNA evidence so compelling. So the fact that the analysts had come up with three different profiles for one person, it's a little scary. And it wasn't mentioned even once, not in Kim's written report and not in her testimony. A fact Thompson clearly found deeply troubling as he'd write in his own review that, quote, it is difficult to imagine any explanation for this result that would not call into question the fundamental reliability of the laboratory's procedures, not just in this case, but in other cases as well. But Thompson's report had more. He'd go on to explain that Kim's statistical estimations were also ridiculously misleading. Let me step back for a minute and give you a bit more background info. According to the National Human Genome Research Institute, human DNA, it's all pretty similar. In fact, from person to person, human DNA is 99.9% identical. And maybe you already knew that. But I remember hearing it for the first time when a researcher from the Human Genome Project came to my high school for the school-wide assembly. And I just remember being, like, completely mind-blown. Genetically, we're all really similar. And given that, it means that in order to find a DNA match, forensic analysts are looking only at the teeny tiny 0.01% of DNA that's different or unique from person to person. And so in simple terms... Scientists doing DNA matching are basically comparing a bunch of different specific points in the DNA pattern to see if they match up. But some people, they happen to share more of these specific points just by chance. So as you might imagine, this system of matching, it isn't foolproof. According to Naomi Elster and JSTOR Daily, partial DNA profiles will match up with many more people than a full DNA profile. And even full profiles may match with a person other than the culprit. And so what does that all mean, ultimately? Well, it means that statistical estimations are really important. They tell us the likelihood that a positive DNA match is just coincidental. But Christy Kim and the prosecutor, they had presented a case to the jury that Thompson argued could have had jurors believing that finding a DNA match was pretty black and white. Either you're a match or you're not. End of story. And I'm not going to lie. Reading through Christy's testimony, that was pretty much the message I got. The prosecutor never questioned Kim on the probability that the DNA match was coincidental. But Kim did note one in her written report. 
If you remember from earlier, she claimed that the DNA type of Jay Sutton can be expected to occur in one out of every 694,000 people among the Black population. But this number was grossly inaccurate. Thompson wrote in his review that based on Kim's method of analysis, the probability of a coincidental match to one of the suspects actually exceeded one in eight. And if that doesn't leave you catching your breath, maybe this will. Thompson would also conclude that based on the DNA profiles provided in the report, a more appropriate analysis of the evidence should have excluded Josiah as a DNA match completely. Christy Kim said that Josiah's DNA pattern was detected in all the evidence. The semen on the Ford Expedition seats, the vaginal swab and the pubic home debris from the rape kit, on the cutting from the victim's genes. But the thing was, according to Thompson, that wasn't true. Or at least it wasn't all true, because Josiah's DNA pattern didn't match the semen found on the seats of the SUV at all. And at this point, I'm not even sure where to start because I just have no idea how this happened. It wasn't even like Thompson got the DNA to do his own testing. He'd figured out that these results were wrong just by looking at Kim's test results. Josiah's profile had distinct differences from the profile typed from the semen evidence. And maybe you're thinking like, okay, that's alarming, but there's still all this other evidence he was a match for, right? Well, Thompson argued that insofar as Josiah wasn't a DNA match for the semen sample, that meant he couldn't be a match for anything else either. And the reason why is a little complicated. In full transparency, it took me reading this report more than a few times to have a good grasp, but I'll try my best to explain now. Outside of the semen evidence found on the SUV seats, all that other DNA evidence, the DNA from the rape kit and genes, those were all what's called mixed samples. And that just means they were made up of DNA from multiple individuals, assumably the victim and both her attackers. The thing about mixed samples, though, is they're a little more difficult to interpret because you don't necessarily know whose DNA is whose. It's all mixed together. But in this case, investigators had something important. The DNA pattern of the victim and the DNA pattern they typed from that semen sample found on the car seat. And that means if you take those mixed evidence samples and exclude the victim's DNA pattern, and then you exclude the DNA pattern from that semen sample, what you're left with is what you can reasonably assume is the DNA pattern of the second rapist. And when Thompson did that process of elimination, he had a profile. A profile that did not match Josiah's. And if Thompson's analysis was correct, it would mean that the semen sample in particular could have been critical in clearing Josiah's name. But I really, really think that Thompson explained the importance of that best. So for this, I'll read to you some excerpts straight from his report. But quick note before I do. Pretty much everyone involved in this case refers to the semen sample as sample number one. So when you hear that, that's what they're talking about. The semen collected from the Ford Expedition seats. So discussing how sample number one, the semen sample, could have excluded Josiah as a suspect once and for all, Thompson writes, Unfortunately, the jury in Sutton's trial never had the opportunity to consider and weigh these possibilities because the jury was never told about this issue. The prosecutor carefully avoided eliciting testimony about sample number one. When asking about the samples, he repeatedly stated that he was interested only in the vaginal sample, the pubic combings, and the stain on the genes. 
At one point, the analyst mentioned sample number one, and the prosecutor responded, I don't want to talk about sample number one, okay? This sample was never mentioned again. Continuing, Thompson doesn't hold back on sharing his hunches, writing, On reading the transcript, I was left with a strong impression that the prosecutor knew there was a problem with sample number one and was taking care to avoid putting any testimony about it on the record. This news segment from Coup 11 was a shock to the Houston public. And immediately after the segment aired in March of 2003, the Houston Police Department sent the DNA samples from the case to be retested in an independent lab. And when the results came back, they confirmed what Thompson had written in his report. Josiah's DNA wasn't a match. Days later, on March 12, 2003, less than two months after Josiah's 21st birthday, a group of incarcerated men huddled around a TV at the Clemens Unit prison where Josiah had been serving his sentence. Clapping and cheering, the men watched intently as Josiah Big Third Sutton, wearing a white t-shirt and oval wireframe glasses, walked out the back door of the Harris County Jail into a crowd of reporters and family. He's out. Big Third's out, they'd yelled inside the Clemens Unit prison. One man, Dionysus Briscoe, told the Houston Chronicle, it was just a collective happiness. And while I can't know the feeling they all felt that day, I've tried many, many times to imagine it. There's this picture that captures the moment Carol Beatty is able to hug her son outside of prison for the first time in what must have been four unimaginably long years. In the image, Carol stands at Josiah's side and her arms are wrapped around his neck. Pulling him close, she rests her cheek on his shoulder. But it's their identical smiles, both huge and bright, that tell you they must be family. The moment looks so wonderfully candid and carefree that it's impossible not to feel instantly infected by their joy. And also, their relief. I can't help but wonder if this is the first true sigh of relief they've breathed in years. When I asked Carol how that moment felt, holding her son finally outside of prison, she'd say, like winning the lottery. But for as much relief as that moment provided, I'm not sure how well it lasted. Because for Josiah, being released on bond meant only that he'd get to go home with his family. Not that his name was cleared. According to his record, Josiah was still a convicted felon. A sexual felon at that which is important to note because according to reporter Rick Casey of the Houston Chronicle, at any point, Josiah could be ordered by a judge to register as a sex offender. And to put that in perspective, while the specific rules that folks on the registry have to follow are different from state to state, according to Dara Lind, writing for Vox, being on the registry means that at least some, if not all of your personal data is published online in a publicly accessible database. The types of information available varies, but typically include things like a color photo, full name, address, even your workplace. Police may be required to alert all neighbors when someone on the registry moves to a new neighborhood, and many states have laws that prohibit sex offenders, regardless of their specific conviction, from living within 500 to 2,000 feet of any place where children gather. Places like parks, pools, schools, even apartment buildings. A requirement that, as you can imagine, often prevents these folks from finding stable and secure housing. According to Vox, many anti-rape activists feel that sex offender registries are misguided. Rather than creating social structures that prevent sexual violence in the first place, registries places the burden on individuals. Here's the list. Go protect yourself. And despite numerous studies that have pointed to the ineffectiveness of these registries— 
These programs and their often far-reaching requirements remain in all 50 states. To the state of Texas, Josiah was a convicted felon who had yet to serve his term. And according to Marianne Fergus, that meant he couldn't even receive the minimal protections offered to folks out on parole. No counseling, no job or housing assistance, not even the 50 bucks they give you on your way out the door. All of that would be enough to hinder anyone. But the reality for folks leaving prison is typically pretty bleak. McCall DeVoe, writing for the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review, summarizes a body of work that points to the long-lasting effects of imprisonment. He explains that incarceration can often create a sense of hopelessness and can even cause significant impairments to decision-making abilities. He goes on to write that this psychological suffering is compounded by the knowledge of violence, the witnessing of violence, or the experience of violence, all too common during incarceration. Some researchers, he continues, assert that the psychological effects of incarceration are likely to endure for some time following release. In this traumatizing environment, Josiah had spent some of his most formative years there. And now that he was out, he struggled, understandably. There was so much for him to catch up on, so many experiences he had missed out on. Marianne Fergus would write that one moment, Josiah is the responsible big brother again, looking after his kid's siblings. But the next, he's living up the teenage years he never got a chance to have. And those who loved Josiah felt the differences when he came home. He just wasn't the same as he'd been before. The one thing that I noticed that was hurtful to me is Josiah put a bucket behind the kitchen door and he had stacked some things on top of it. And I asked him, I said, Josiah, why did you do that? He said, Mama, when you sleep in prison, you can't sleep soundly because someone can come up and shank you, meaning, you know, stab you. He said, so you have to put a bucket by your bed and... If anyone walks up to you in the dark, then they'll trip over the bucket and it'll wake you up. And the changes in behavior, they popped up everywhere. Always on high alert, Josiah started saving every receipt just in case he'd need to prove an alibi. Josiah may not have been in prison, but he wasn't free either. But he still had so many dreams. No longer of the football variety, sure, but Josiah still saw himself achieving success even if it had looked different than he originally imagined it. He'd go to college, he'd do the entrepreneur thing, he'd take care of his family, he'd be a real barber. According to the Houston Chronicle, he'd even enroll in a barber school, until he found work as a mail clerk, and his new schedule meant he'd need to quit. When he lost that job, he'd eventually find another in sanitation. But he'd be laid off from that one after only a few days. At times, he'd struggled to get along with his mom, Carol would tell Marianne Fergus, he's still 16. He doesn't know how to handle certain issues. He's not the same. And who would be? I caught myself saying aloud as I read. Prison, the state, it had stolen so much. And what had it given? Josiah would tell the Houston Chronicle, my life is a question mark, and not because I chose to make it that way. Josiah was right. He didn't make it that way. But the list of folks who did was long. William Thompson, the criminologist whose review first revealed the HPD crime lab's misconduct in this case, had accused the prosecutor, Joseph Ombi, of purposely trying the case in a way that avoided the issues with the DNA matching. But Ombi denied knowing anything that could have cleared Josiah. 
Responding to the criticism he'd been facing as a result of the case's media coverage, he told reporter Alan Bernstein of the Houston Chronicle that he felt that he was the victim of a broad brush. And if you're making a face right now, same. And I wonder if the reporter might have been too, because Ombi would backtrack once the words were out, telling them, that's probably a bad word to use. I'm not trying to portray myself as a victim. What I'm saying is that this case, we handled it like all the other cases that we have. And I didn't do anything to convict Sutton except attempt to put on the best case that the evidence allowed me. He'd even try to relate to Josiah saying, if I were Sutton, I would never say that this has worked because I've been places for a long period of time that I didn't want to be. A callback to the five and a half years he spent in the army during the 1970s. It was a comparison he'd admit wasn't the same as prison. It made me wonder how much thought he was giving to all that military time when he tried this case. Was he considering the consequences of a wrongful conviction when he was calling Josiah evil and dangerous? We can't ever prove whether Thompson's actions were malicious, but it calls into question what the job of the prosecution really is. Justice or winning? The way our legal system is set up, it can be easy to believe that the prosecution represents the interests of the victim. But that's just not true. The prosecution represents the government. Their job is supposedly to uphold the fairness of the system, not to ensure the victim is represented. And that's why it's important to mention the victim survivor in this case. She accused Josiah and Gregory, and she was wrong. But that's not to say that what happened to her wasn't very real. In fact, most folks who are the victim of sexual assault personally know their attackers, so the identity of the perpetrator isn't usually a question. The National Registry of Exonerations reports that strangers commit only about one-fifth of sexual assaults, but they account for 71% of the false convictions that result in exoneration. According to the Innocence Project, misidentification is caused by a large number of deeply studied factors. Human memory deteriorates super quickly, and even what we do remember can become contaminated or altered relatively easily. Even repeatedly attempting to recall a memory can change it. But more significantly, the Innocence Project frames eyewitness misidentification as a systemic issue. In fact, they found suggestive police practices to be the leading cause of misidentification in almost 80% of their cases. It's only in rare instances that eyewitnesses intentionally misidentify someone. The Innocence Project says that when eyewitnesses are mistaken, they're not lying. They sincerely believe that they had identified the right person and have often been led to that belief by poor or biased investigations. And that certainly seems to be at play here. While the victim survivor in this case accused Josiah based on her memories of the attack, it was up to the prosecution and the crime lab to confirm that they had the right person. She didn't hide the fact that she never got to clearly see her attacker's faces. She believed she recognized Josiah and Gregory from their hats. She mentioned it in her initial statement and she mentioned it at trial. But she did give other important details to police. She said her attackers were on the shorter and leaner side, describing the attacker she believed was Josiah as 5'7 and 135 pounds. She herself was 5'10. But Josiah, the football player with the nickname Big Third, weighed over 200 pounds and stood at a tall 6'1 inches. But the lab's findings gave backing to her ID, and DNA evidence is highly trusted. Like, really trusted. A 2005 poll from Gallup found that 85% of Americans believe DNA evidence is very or completely reliable. 
And reporter Katie Wirth of Frontline writes that researchers at the University of Nevada, Yale, and Claremont McKenna College found that jurors rated DNA evidence as 95% accurate. All of this to say, I think it's important to highlight that a case of mistaken identity doesn't mean that the victim survivor wasn't being truthful about the trauma she experienced. Finding and holding her attackers accountable was supposed to be the job of the state. And these were sentiments Carol Beatty would echo to me on our call. She didn't blame the survivor. She blamed the state. She told me after the truth came out, she saw the victim survivor once in person. And I said, I just want you to know that I forgive you and it's no hard feelings and I would never do anything to hurt you. And I walked away and that was it. And really, if blame was owed, it seemed that no one could be more responsible than the HBD crime lab. In December of 2002, a couple months before the details of Josiah's case came to light, the HPD crime lab exposed by the investigative reporting of Coup 11 was forced to close and undergo review. And the details of this review were way worse than I could have imagined. According to reporter Roma Khanna, none of the DNA lab's analysts had the proper education and training required to do their jobs. Only one of the analysts had even completed all of the necessary college math and science courses. We're talking classes like stats, genetics, biochem, biology, you know, like super foundational stuff for a DNA analyst. Roma Khanna would go on to explain that there were zero methods in place to ensure that the analysts had actually mastered the skills they were trained in. And that training, well, that might be a strong word for their, quote, informal and undocumented peer mentoring program. Christy Kim, the analyst in this particular case, was one of the many who had never taken a statistics class. And according to the Houston Chronicle, statistical mistakes were found in at least three of her cases. Even the folks heading up the lab, including the founder, seemed to lack critical expertise. In one incredibly ironic example, reporter Romakana explained that the former DNA supervisor, after failing his proficiency tests and getting suspended from mismanagement, was then promoted to head of quality control. But the problems with the lab weren't limited to a few bad workers. As is often the case, the issue seemed much deeper, systemic. The lab was poorly funded, which meant low salaries for workers and no budget from the city for equipment. A leaky roof went unrepaired for years. As a part of the review, retesting of years' worth of evidence began. And unsurprisingly, they found that the errors weren't limited to Josiah's case. In an article published in November of 2003, the Houston Chronicle reported that of the 74 retests that had been completed at the time, 18 showed major discrepancies with the crime lab's findings. For another 21 cases, including a death penalty case, DNA evidence was either destroyed or missing, meaning that no retesting could be completed at all. Reading all of this, it was so sickening. All of these errors in DNA matching— something that was supposedly so objective. It made me wonder if the usefulness of DNA was a lot more limited than what I had originally assumed. I got my answer in an article conveniently titled The False Promise of DNA Testing. It was written by the journalist Matthew Shear for The Atlantic, and she explains that as DNA evidence has gained traction and support, it's become a pillar of our legal system. One that is, as attorney Bicca Barlow told him, for a lot of lawyers, too costly and time-intensive to fight. Shear goes on to describe a startling study from the University College of London, where researchers took DNA from a man who had been convicted of rape and sent it off to 17 different highly experienced analysts for comparison to the mixed sample rape kit DNA that made up the bulk of the prosecution's case. When the results came back, 
12 analysts said the defendant could be excluded as a match. One said the defendant couldn't be excluded as a match, and four said their tests were inconclusive. It seemed that the science of DNA matching may be a little more subjective than we'd like to believe. And as our DNA technology advances, analysis becomes more and more difficult. A smaller and mixed samples means scientists are using complex and sometimes subjective methods, searching for the teeniest of differences. And all of this doesn't even take into account other more commonly known risks, like the potential for contamination, bias, or outright corruption. Shear explains that lab analysts at government-funded labs, like in Josiah's case, often work closely with police and prosecutors, sometimes in the same buildings, opening up the potential for bias to creep in. Attorney Barlow tells Shear that, quote, an analyst might be told, okay, we have a suspect, here's the DNA. Look at the vaginal swab and compare it to the suspect. And they do, but they're also being told all sorts of irrelevant things, like the victim was six years old, the victim was traumatized, it was a hideous crime. In some places, like North Carolina, analysts are even compensated for work that leads to a conviction. While I don't want to give the impression that DNA evidence is completely unreliable, once you zoom out, it starts to become clear that perhaps it's not the impenetrable wall it's made out to be to the public. And this perception, it's dangerous. T.W. Weston, chairman of the Harris County Grand Jury Association, told Houston Chronicle reporter Tom Marshall that often in cases with DNA evidence, defense lawyers encourage their clients, especially those without much money, to accept plea bargains rather than risk jury trials where prosecutors push for maximum penalties. Using bad DNA evidence to coerce a plea bargain is worse than physical torture. You can resist torture, but not the threat of scientific evidence against you. But in Josiah's case, not even a trial saved him from the system that would change the entire trajectory of his life. And as the HPD crime lab's negligence continued to come to light over weeks and months, Josiah remained convicted of a crime he didn't commit. But it wasn't for a lack of trying, because Josiah's attorney, David Dow, continued fighting legally to clear Josiah's name. But as Dow told the Houston Chronicle, it's much easier to convict someone who didn't do it than to exonerate someone who didn't do it after they've been convicted. Overturning a conviction requires cutting through loads of red tape. And in this case, Josiah's counsel was asking for the court to vacate his sentence, and they were also asking for a governor's pardon, an action that could only be taken after approval from the Board of Pardon and Paroles, who required request letters from Judge Joan Hoffman, who oversaw Josiah's case, as well as the district attorney, Chuck Rosenthal. Except there were a couple of big problems. First, Judge Huffman couldn't legally send her letter until she was done overseeing the request for Josiah's sentence to be vacated. And DA Rosenthal was extremely resistant to anything that would help the process to exonerate Josiah move more quickly. When Rosenthal did eventually send his letter to the board, he managed to ask her a pardon, but without even once mentioning that he believed Josiah to be innocent. A pretty critical issue because without that, Josiah wouldn't be eligible to have the conviction itself removed from his record and would even possibly have to register as a sex offender. Rosenthal would tell reporter Roma Khanna that he wouldn't use the words innocent because he didn't know that he was innocent. Despite Thompson's review of Christy Kim's work and the multiple independent DNA analyses, all which excluded Josiah as a match, the DA wouldn't back down on his position. He couldn't be sure. Josiah, his family, his attorney, they were all understandably frustrated with the slowness of this process. The red tape and the technicalities that delayed justice for month after month. A year after Josiah's release, 
When his conviction had still not been cleared, his lawyer would tell the Houston Chronicle, referring to the Board of Pardon and Paroles, I think they have no guts. I think it's easier for them to not do anything than to do the right thing. There's nobody that puts any heat on them, no political consequences to pay when you have a young Black kid who is being left in limbo by them. And Josiah really was in limbo, unable to fully move on with his life, forced to carry the trauma of his four and a half years in prison. With no support from the system responsible, Josiah continued to struggle with the realities of life after prison. And then finally, on May 10th, 2004, 14 months after Josiah's original release, the Board of Pardons and Proles finally recommended that Josiah receive a pardon on the basis of innocence. Four days later, Texas Governor Rick Perry granted the pardon. It was a day the whole family had been waiting for for over five years, and it meant that Josiah would potentially be eligible to receive compensation for the time he spent wrongfully imprisoned. But it would take another year before he'd win that battle, as the DA continued to refuse to say he believed Josiah actually innocent, a requirement under law for folks like Josiah to be compensated. Josiah's lawyers would eventually work out a deal with Rosenthal, and he'd receive his money, but Rosenthal would not have to comment on Josiah's innocence. Josiah would receive $118,000 from the state, a laughable amount considering all that he had lost. But despite the pardoning and the money, Josiah's mom, Carol Beatty, would tell journalist Matthew Shearer in 2016 that Josiah's childhood was stolen from him. And from that, he never recovered. The money ran out, and when it did, so many of the same problems remained. According to Matthew T. Clark of Prison Legal News, Josiah would write a letter to Rosenthal after his pardon. Quote, Most of my days are spent worrying about where my next meal will come from and trying to find transportation from one place to the next. My efforts to get my life back on track have been filled with disappointment and frustration. I'm out of prison, but I'm hardly free. I have the opportunity to ask Carol Beatty how Josiah is doing today. He's scarred by everything that has happened to him, and it scarred him tremendously. His relationship with his family is not good. You know, his siblings have to you know, experience the wrath of his anger. And so therefore we avoid it, you know, and he deals with toxic people, toxic situations. He tries to drown the hurt and the pain. In actuality, he's this sensitive man that can be loving and kind, but he puts up a guard to protect himself. We had a talk a few weeks ago that he just realizing how prison has affected his life. And what his, it has done to him, he has seven children. His oldest daughter is 17. I think he conceived her as soon as he came home from prison. And there was no relationship. And, and his kids are older now, and they're getting angry because they have not established a relationship with him as of today. The only reason my grandchildren know each other is because I make sure that I keep that bond and that I introduce them to each other and that they know who they are. He has a 13-year-old daughter that I try to, you know, she's very intelligent and she wants to understand her dad, but it's it's hard for her. And it's like a cycle, you know, Josiah's father was not active in his life. So all of that on top of the prison, you know, on top of everything else, it's just, he speaks now, even talk, you know, talk about suicide. You know, he's, he's had suicidal thoughts. 
there's things that he, you know, he's so angry. He's held on to this toxic relationship for nine years with an individual that doesn't mean him well at all, you know, and I don't know if that's a comfort zone for him or what, you know, but you know, he doesn't realize that the people that love him and he's out there still seeking love, he's constantly, you know, making toxic decisions that's involving his life and making him deal with deeper pain that he's one day is going to have to face. And I think he's still running. He's still running from the pain. He's still running from the scars. He's still running and he he's not willing to face them, you know. And it isn't just the emotional scars Josiah lives with. The legal repercussions are still following him all these years later. Josiah does not work because most places will not hire him because the arrest record is still there. Because the conviction, even though he's pardoned based on innocence, is still in writing. And they have to go through their legal department. They got to go through the legal process in order to hire him, which why would they do that? And they could just hire the next person that comes along. So it's still there. Like if he were to apply to a job, they can still see. And it says, oh, he was it was reversed. But realistically, that doesn't look good for him is is sort of what you're saying. Exactly. As I considered everything I had learned about Josiah's story, the work of Black Power activist and historian Angela Davis came to mind. In a piece titled Rape, Racism in the Capitalist Setting, she writes that, quote, In the U.S., rape laws were originally framed for the protection of men of the upper classes, whose women ran the risk of being assaulted. What happens to working-class folks has always been a little concern to the courts. As a result, appallingly few rapists have ever been prosecuted. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. Davis continues saying, Appallingly few, that is, if black men are exempted from consideration. While rapists of working-class folks have so rarely been brought to justice, the rape charge has been indiscriminately aimed at Black men, the guilty and innocent alike. Thus, of the 455 men executed between 1930 and 1967 for rape convictions, 405 of them were Black. Maybe 1967 feels like a long time ago, but newer statistics indicate that the link between sexual assault convictions and race have remained. According to Debbie Nathan writing for The Appeal in 2018, about 900,000 people are in public sex offender registries with about one of every 100 Black men on a registry, a rate double that of white men. Stories like Josiah's are no anomaly. A 2017 report from the National Registry of Exonerations found that, quote, 59% of sexual assault exonerees are Black four and a half times their proportion of the population. Out of every thousand sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. This statistic reveals such an unsettling truth about how our society sees survivors, untrustworthy, promiscuous, undeserving of healing. And when we start to have the fuller picture, see who the courts are even willing to prosecute It raises the question of what exactly these systems are offering to any of us. I asked Carol Beatty whether the state could ever give Josiah justice for what was done to him. He could never receive justice. They took five years of his innocent life where he was becoming from a boy to a man. Those are the most important times of his life to develop. Josiah was a star football player for Elsick. 
the coaches were talking about how he would go pro. He was the captain of the varsity football team as a freshman. And he had a career that was promised to him because of his abilities in football, his strength and his speed. And he was known in the district for being one the best player. Josiah was taken from that and put in prison to get a GED. The year that he went to prison, his high school went to state. And he was the captain of that very team that went to state. They can't give that back to him. They can't give the memories of him graduating from high school, going to prom, being able to go to college and play college football. They can't give that back to him. And she's right. Despite the fact that Josiah's story would help exonerate others in similar circumstances, Despite the fact that Carol herself has taken these traumatic experiences and used them to be an advocate and support for others facing injustice, despite the fact that Josiah's conviction was ultimately overturned, the simple fact remains. These systems can steal, but they can't ever return. They're just not built to. I want to extend a huge thank you to Carol Beatty, who agreed to share her experiences with me for today's episode. As always, at True Crime, we want to encourage you to support those most directly impacted by these stories. So I want to share with you a little about what she's working on now and how you can support. First, Carol shared with me that she's in the process of writing a book. The book will go beyond the story you heard today about Josiah and expand to stories throughout her whole life. She described the book to me as being about the struggle of not giving up and having faith in believing whatever your thoughts and feelings are. Carol also shared with me that she's long wanted to start an organization called Mothers Against Injustice and hopes to soon take steps towards making this dream a reality. Her hope is the organization can support mothers with experiences like hers and can serve as a place for them to come together and take action against injustice. Funding is one of the biggest challenges in her being able to start the organization, and she asks us to direct financial support to help her in this process. You can direct financial contributions to Carol via Cash App. Her cash tag is Carol, C-A-R-O-L, Cox, C-O-X, Mom, M-O-M, 4040. Those last ones are number 4040. So the whole cash tag is Carol Cox Mom 4040. But hold on. Before you close out of your app, I want to be real with y'all for a second. I love doing this podcast. I absolutely love it, but the truth is this podcast requires an unbelievable number of work hours. It's literally a full-time job on top of my full-time job, and those are just the unpaid hours that go into this thing. There are also a lot of paid hours as well that our small team puts in, and I'm going to keep it 100. All that money at the moment, it's coming out of my pocket. And I want you to know that I'm absolutely not sharing that with you to complain. Not at all. This podcast is my choice and working on it is really, really, really incredible. I'm sharing it with you because it's true. And as much as I would love to continue self-funding, I know that it won't and just can't be the reality long term. And so I wanted to ask you a favor. If you love this show, if you believe the stories we're telling are important, that they should be heard, and if you want true crime to be the one telling them, would you consider supporting us on Patreon? The amazing thing about Patreon is that a small contribution genuinely makes a world of difference. For $5 a month, you'd be directly helping us to keep this show going. And to thank you, becoming a patron means that you'll also get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content. And 
That sounds really funny for me to say, but look, it's true. Throughout today's episode, you got to hear from Josiah Sutton's mom, Carol Beatty. And if you subscribe to our Patreon, not only will I personally love you forever, but also you'll get instant access to my extended conversation with Carol as our first piece of behind-the-scenes content. If you're willing and able, you can sign up today at patreon.com, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash pod. And as always, before we leave you, I want to bring special attention to some of the resources we relied on most heavily for this episode. Today, I'd like to thank the team of reporters at the Houston Chronicle who covered this story. In particular, reporter Marion Fergus, whose feature pieces were essential to the creation of the episode. As always, you can find a full list of sources and other resources on our website, truerkindpodcast.com. And you can follow us on your Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching our handle, at truerkindpod.